This week, in place of People of Note, we have another Fine Minds Lecture. Our Fine Minds Lecturer today is the biographer and memoirist Lyndall Gordon. Lyndall Gordon studied history and English at the University of Cape Town and then 19th century American literature at Columbia in New York. She is currently Senior Research Fellow at St. Hilda's College, Oxford. Lyndall Gordon has described her childhood and youth in the Cape in her two memoirs, Shared Lives and, more recently, Divided Lives, Dreams of a Mother and Daughter. She is also the award-winning author of six biographies, including The Imperfect Life of T.S. Eliot, Henry James, His Woman and His Art, and Lives Like Loaded Guns, Emily Dickinson and Her Family's Feuds. Lyndall Gordon is a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and a member of Penn. She is married to Professor of Cellular Pathology, Simon Gordon. They live in Oxford and have two grown-up daughters. In her lecture today, The Possibilities of Biography, Lyndall Gordon will discuss the frontier of the genre of biography, moving away from what she calls the routine plod from birth to grave. She will look at four biographies and memoirs that try out new ways of telling lives. The lecture will bring in the unexpected discoveries of research, the daunting gaps in the records, and the attempt to find a truth about life, while admitting how impossible it is to know the whole truth. Here, then, is Lyndall Gordon talking about the possibilities of biography. There's no way to tell the whole truth about a life. If we think of our own lives and want to tell all, it would be impossible. In the case of a writer's life, a truth of sorts comes readily because poems and novels direct the biographer to a vital story from the writer's point of view, what Henry James calls the figure in the carpet of a great career. T.S. Eliot's story is simple, as he put it, the sequence that culminates in faith. His poems explore the sequence, dramatizing the tension between the model lives of saints, burning in every moment, and the flaws of people like himself. A gift to a biographer is his honesty about his flaws, his pride, intolerance, and guilt over treatment of women. Things ill done and done to others' harm, he confesses in his wartime masterpiece, Four Quartets. One recent development in biography is to look at partners in a life of genius. Virginia Woolf wrote in her diary about the loneliness of a writer's life, and in a sense this is true if we recall her lone tramps across the Sussex Downs and through the city of London as she thought out her work for the next day. She spent many hours alone in her writing room at Monk's house in the village of Rodmel in Sussex. But loneliness in many other cases carries an element of a romantic myth. A writer may not be quite as enclosed in the Tower of Art as it appears. Henry James, the American poet Emily Dickinson, and T.S. Eliot do draw on others, 
and Elliot once spoke of Henry James as preying on others with a merciless clairvoyance. As a biographer, I've looked for what I think of as, for want of a better word, the collaborative elements in art, aware that collaboration may not be acknowledged as such. In looking at the roles of women in Eliot's and James's lives, I'm questioning the standard view of passive muse, discovering in archives more active involvements even though both writers took care to destroy these women's letters. Vital to Eliot's spiritual journey were five extraordinary and very different women. His mother, the guiding light, his first wife, Vivian Haywood, who provided the inferno for his poetry, his first love, Emily Hale, a Bostonian speech teacher, whom his poetry transforms into a lady of silences. He was thinking of the way Beatrice was for Dante. And then there was the brisk, brainy Mary Trevelyan, Eliot's companion in the 40s and 50s. And finally, his much younger second wife, Valerie Fletcher, who offered him forgiveness. I wanted to discover what these women were like in actual life and what they wanted, measured against what Eliot made of them in his imagination. It was fascinating to find how far they all lent themselves to the roles his poetry assigned them. In talking about what is innovative in biography, I'd like to mention two biographies which could be called dual biographies. One about a brother and sister, the poet William Wordsworth and his sister Dorothy, and one about a husband and wife, the English poet Ted Hughes and his American wife, Sylvia Plath. Why these biographies struck me as innovative is that they go beyond a close family tie to explore collaboration in subtle forms, showing how it can heighten works of art, and at the same time, the two biographies explore forms of fraternal or marital tie beyond definition. The first is called The Ballad of Dorothy Wordsworth. It's by Frances Wilson, and it was published in 2009. Dorothy and William Wordsworth were inseparable in the late 1790s and early 1800s. These were the peak years of William Wordsworth's originality as a poet. Separated as children, they come together in Dorothy's late twenties when they roam the countryside and share a cottage in Grasmere in England's Lake District. Dorothy's eyes fix on daffodils dancing in the breeze. Her journal has the very words about daffodils that Wordsworth used in his famous poem that begins, I wandered lonely as a cloud. This exclusive union would end tragically for Dorothy upon William's marriage. Frances Wilson made a boldly original decision to focus on the few years of Dorothy's creative tie with her brother, a life wholly given to poetry at the high point of William's output. 
part of the fascination in reading this book is to participate in its attempt to define the indefinable. Some people have wanted to label Dorothy. They've wanted to say that this was an incestuous relationship. And I respect Frances Wilson for refusing to go this route. She says that if people want to label Dorothy, that's their problem, not Dorothy's. This book stretches our capacity to take in what is rare and strange. The second book is called Her Husband, Hughes and Plath, A Marriage, and it's by an American biographer, Diane Middlebrook, published in 2003 by Virago. This is a dual portrait about what marriage can do to develop literary stars. Turning away from the public fixation on Sylvia Plath's suicide in 1963 and turning away, too, from the standard story of a destructive union seen in the authorised biography by Anne Stevenson and underlined in the Misery movie with Gwyneth Paltrow, Middlebrook's research reveals the extent of Hughes and Plath's cooperation, their mutual encouragement as poets. Sometimes they even use the same paper to draft their works. Middlebrook sustains our curiosity about the integration of marriage with ambitions on the Hughes-Plath scale to compose lasting works. My own experiment with dual biography involves two women and Henry James. James had the power, I believe, beyond that of any other man, to plumb the unknown potentialities of women. I wanted to tell the story of two women in particular. The first was his beloved cousin, Minnie Temple, a free spirit, far too free for James's mother, who was the real-life heroine, that's his word, of his youth in Newport, Rhode Island. She became the model for his American girl who wants to affront her destiny by going to Europe. And he put her into several of his novels in that capacity. The second woman was his friend and fellow writer Constance Fenimore Wilson, a great niece of James Fenimore Cooper, and he called her Fenimore. Her depressive solitude led to her suicide in Venice in 1894, and James told a strange story which I made the opening of my biography. He said that he rode out onto the Venetian lagoon with a gondola full of Fenimore's dresses, with the idea of drowning the dresses in the lagoon. Now, these were dresses of the 1890s with enormous balloon sleeves, and when he pushed them down with the gondola's pole, they refused to drown, and one after the other they came up, he said, like black balloons. Almost every review of this biography spoke about this this dramatic scene. Both, I think that this scene actually is, whether it's true or not, whether James was embroidering it, we don't know. But I think it's very suggestive of his guilt in not giving enough um, reciprocity to Constance Fenimore Wilson, who had helped him and given so much of herself 
to him. He drew on her in several of his works, as I try to show. Both women, many Temple and Fenimore, drew Drains' attention, a creative attention that claimed them through their untimely deaths. I was intrigued by the creative fertility of James's posthumous relationships with these rare advanced women. I've always chosen lives that push me to experiment with biography. Eliot's masks opened up the challenge of the hidden life, as did James's concentration on secrets, the centrality of what is unstated. Both Eliot and James direct the biographer to gaps and silences, the mystery at the core of lives. Both are sceptical about the kind of outer shell stressed in what used to be called definitive or full-scale biography, that is, the official chronicle of public events, like, say, the Nobel Prize ceremony which Eliot attended in 1948. Our lives are covered by the currents of action, he remarks. To peel back the visible action, to discern the movements of the mind and spirit, this, it seems to me, is the real challenge. I'm suggesting an alternative form of biography, the creative, or what James called the private life, that coexists with the public visible acts. This is consistent with Virginia Woolf's focus on what's happening between the acts. Without that, we could have a vacant shell of fact. All the same, we can't do without the visible acts. The time, the chronology of the lifespan, the movements from place to place. An innovative biography which balances inner and outer brilliantly is called Reading Chekhov, a critical journey. It's by an American biographer, Janet Malcolm. This book crosses biography with other genres, so it's not easy to label it. It's a fusion of close reading, biography, and travel. Malcolm herself, present in the story, follows Chekhov's footsteps from one Russian setting to another. Her positioning in St. Petersburg, Moscow, and Yalta on the Black Sea is designed to illuminate the extent to which place determines the fate of Chekhov and his characters. I would think place crucial in the lives of many South African writers. The Karoo, in the case of Olive Schreiner, of course. Coastal Cape Town, particularly Cork Bay, in the novels of Fanula Dowling. And traditional causa settings for the rare girl who became Sendewa Magona, as revealed in her newly published novel, Chasing the Tales of My Father's Cattle. When Janet Malcolm arrives in a run-down and almost deserted Yalta at the start of her book, she draws the reader into the remoteness from urban culture that Chekhov experienced when T.B. exiled him to this place in his last years, his most creative years. His stories and plays, The Three Sisters, The Cherry Orchard, project a futile yearning in intelligent beings stuck in the provinces. 
Structurally, this biography is unusual. From the late vantage point of Yalta, Malcolm looks back to successive landscapes in Chekhov's life, including his Dasha, his summer home, near Moscow. It turns out to have been destroyed by the Soviets and rebuilt, an ersatz monument promoted by a guide who can spout numerous facts of Chekhov's life, but in a way that deadens his story. Malcolm is seeking instead what she calls the kernel of his character in his own authentic words. Here is Chekhov speaking about the primacy of the inner life through a fictional hero in his Yalta story, The Lady with the Little Dog. He had two lives, one open, seen and known, and the other life running its course in secret. Everything that made the kernel of his life was hidden from others. Judging others by himself, he believes, I'm quoting, that every man had his real life under the cover of night. George Eliot suggests in her great novel Middlemarch that to all fine expression there goes somewhere an originating activity. Biography, as I see it, attempts to explore what sets a life going and the elusive link between the activity of a life and its dreams, myths and fictions. Biography central Biography's central questions have to do with the sources of creativity in the life. We are curious about greatness in writers and other artists and about that overwhelming question, how to live. We look to the great for answers to this question. And I wanted to quote Yeats, um, who wrote in his essay, A General Introduction to My Work, in 1937, that the great poet is not the model most of us are when we sit down to breakfast. He has been transformed as an idea, something intended, complete. The great with words are superlative at telling us what drives them. The first feminist, Mary Wollstonecraft, at the end of the 18th century, wrote some very telling words to her sister Everina in 1787, that is, some five years before she wrote her famous Vindication of the Rights of Woman in 1792. She wrote to her sister, I am the first of a new genus. She means the first of a new kind of woman. I cannot walk the beaten track. It is against the bent of my nature. Those words riveted me when I was reading her letters and compelled the biography I proceeded to write about her. Virginia Woolf, in her masterpiece The Waves, dismisses the standard markers of the lifespan. She says categorically through her novelist character Bernard that all those Victorian stories of birth, school, marriage and death aren't true that our lives turn on moments of humiliation and triumph that happen now and then, undeniably. So Virginia Woolf, too, confirms the inwardness of emerging genius. 
During the second half of the 20th century, the so-called full-scale or definitive tome was in the ascendant. Now there's a reaction, at least in some of us, in favour of narrative, dream life, the life in shadow, so as to draw forward that aspect of the life that may not be enacted in ways we can document. In writing a South African memoir, Divided Lives, Dreams of a Mother and Daughter, I was looking, in part, at the physical divide of migration and the generational divide between the 1950s and the 1970s with the outbreak of women's liberation. But at a deeper level, our dreams take us different ways. The mother as religious visionary with affinities for Emily Bronte, the daughter, myself, as a feminist, asking how it is to be a woman. Essentially, the deep focus comes to be on shadow, on dream versus active life. And here I'm reflecting near the end of the book. A biographer might say in the 80s of the last century, a mother in Cape Town ran seven Bible classes while her daughter lectured in Oxford on women in Victorian fiction. So much for fact. Roads not taken beckon in the shadows of lives. Where purpose in the routine sense may be withdrawn and the future does not exist. The mother continued to imagine migration to a promised land, that is Israel, embodied in the love of her life. Her daughter continued to imagine her own South African version of the return of the native. And I ended with a question I can't answer. Are we our acts or are we our unacted dreams? Divided Lives, published this year in paperback, is set here in Namaqualand and Cape Town, and originally it started with my mother's mindset as a diffident woman poet in the 40s and 50s. I'm only a housewife at the bottom of Africa, she would say. My London editor cut this African context because she wanted to stress what she called universal motherhood, but here it is slid into the story at a later stage. A writer's life is hardly thought of at the bottom of Africa. Only someone as gifted as Alan Payton can venture to be a writer. Cry the beloved country has the resonance to catch an overseas ear, that magical overseas, arbiter of values we can't judge for ourselves. Others my mother used to read were Afrikaners developing a robust vernacular, the tal, for a local readership. Writing also for a local readership are talented black poets and playwrights of the drum generation, a politically defined magazine coming out of the townships of Johannesburg. Builders on the roads improvise in Koza or Zulu, chanting in unison to the beat of the pickaxe. They lift, bend back, let fall, audible, but hardly in print. Although this kind of life-writing memoir has much in common with fiction, it's emphatically not fiction because of its commitment to authenticity, to what actually 
did happen. Authenticity is vital to life writing as a genre. We can believe it as verifiable fact. I don't read much biographical fiction unless a work has the imaginative power of Shakespeare's Richard III or Henry IV or Brecht's Galileo. It simply doesn't ring true. This has to do with fictional license. A novelist feels free to take Freud to America or Virginia Woolf to Manhattan, even though neither went there. To my mind, this is excessive license. At a woman writer's salon in London, I heard Eva Hoffman challenge writers of fictional biography with this question. Would it be valid to construct a story about how Henry James killed his sister? Of course, it's unthinkable. She wanted to prod them uh, about this fictional license. Some decades ago, it was modish to talk about the death of the author and grant total license to the reader, freeing the reader from seeing what is there on the page so that a reader is empowered to invent or deduce whatever he or she likes. I think Virginia Woolf got the balance right when she said, let books be an equal creation between us. Virginia Woolf, with her own flair for biography, derived perhaps from her father as the founding editor of the Dictionary of National Biography, has a sense of a life behind creative works, one of the strongest elements in her essays. Following her example, I attempt to read back from the work to the life, but it's a delicate act because of the transmutation of life into art. For example, in Eliot's second play, The Family Reunion, there's Harry's dread that he pushed his unwanted wife overboard. He's haunted by the furies of conscience. This play was written in 1938, and the date is significant because that's when his own first wife, Vivian was put away in an asylum against her will, and she stayed there for the rest of her life. She was disruptive. She was embarrassing to Eliot, but she was no danger to society. Life and art are here so close as to make this play a species of confession. Obviously, there are works of art where the life of the artist does not reverberate. We might think of Shakespeare or Jane Austen. But because I'm keen to pursue the biographical sources of creativity, I've chosen subjects like Virginia Woolf or Charlotte Bronte, where life and work are particularly close. In reading the life this way, a biographer must be alert to a more subtle correspondence, the truth Henry James famously declared that art makes life, not the reverse. Eliot exploring through his poetry the sequence that culminates in faith does shape his life so far as he can to accord with this Dantean scenario. And I may say so, he does it with great personal cost. I've not so far talked of the more obvious requirements of biography, the documents, the visits to archives, because, it seems to me, the hypothesis about a subject's life, 
about the core issues in that life comes first, before visits to archives. The documentary material is vital, but it's no use going without an idea of what to look for. Archival exploration is my favourite phase of biography. Another biographer, Humphrey Carpenter, who wrote Lives of Auden, Pound and Benjamin Britten, said rightly that you have to go with questions in your mind or you'll get seriously unstuck. He said too that if you ask the right question, the story unfolds almost of itself. And so it had been for me when, as a student working on Eliot, I went to look at his papers in the Burr collection at the New York Public Library and at the Houghton Library at Harvard. The question was, when did his religious life begin? It was a radical question in 1970 because until then people spoke of a divided career, a sophisticated antagonist of faith, sceptical, debunking, then, in 1927, a conversion, after which he became a religious poet. My mother in Cape Town had read Eliot differently, had seen him as a persistent searcher for belief, and when I followed her reading of the poetry and looked for this possibility in the manuscripts and letters and in his notes as a philosophy student, the answer was overwhelming. My mother had been right it became abundantly clear that it was a single-minded life. Research takes ages, and then revision takes ages, because the glory of biography is authenticity, and every detail must be accurate. I enjoy precision and what dates can tell us. Talking about archives, I think this is the moment to make a confession, that is to own to what could be an off-putting problem in approaching biography. There are times when it's occurred to me that what we biographers do is morally indefensible. And this came home to me most forcibly once sitting in the Houghton Library at Harvard when I looked at Henry James's death mask. Um, I'd seen it in the catalogue and called for it um, not sure that I really wanted to look at it. And then I turned around and saw a tall white box on the table. It was so tall that I had to stand to lift the lid. It was like looking down into a grave. I saw a white face, thinner than in life, but shockingly lifelike, as though the eyes might open at any moment and look at you. His eyes were what friends had noticed first, light grey and keen, when not veiled by his lids, looking at them with scorching intensity as though he could see into their secret selves. The line of his mouth sliced through the lower half of his face, exceptionally wide, parallel to the edge of his eyes. No one saw that mobile mouth in repose. It was always in motion as the master dictated his works or held forth to admiring listeners or else pursed those lips in the spectatorial gaze of John Singer Sargent's great portrait of James at the age of 70. That gaze makes the act of looking a Jamesian drama of disconcerting intelligence.
as transfixed, I stared into that bared face. I felt horribly intrusive. There was no need for James to say, as he does, that one-sided familiarity on the part of the biographer is a temptation to be resisted. For the dead subject has no rights, if his papers be in the public domain, or if his misguided executor authorises an exhaustive tome, James was scathing about the value of quantity. His sole recourse was to talk through his work, speak as pale, forewarned victim, challenging the conscience of a future intruder. I thought uneasily of his late tale, The Real Right Thing, where the ghost of a writer appears to a biographer with the deadly name of Withermore and bars the way. One solution to the guilt of curiosity is to turn to one's own life, to venture on memoir. For me, as an expatriate, the subject of migration, now an increasingly common experience, is a draw. One of the most innovative migration memoirs is Eva Hoffman's classic Lost in Translation, published in 1990, which looks at the act of shifting homelands from the point of view of language. Lost in Translation is really two stories. There's the daughter of Holocaust survivors growing up in post-war Poland, and then, across a silent divide, there's an adolescent transplanted against her will to the New World, Canada and Texas. Her unmaking and remaking as a writer is relayed in terms of language. Will she remain an oxymoron, that is, in conflict, or can she become a hybrid? Tesknoita, Polish for nostalgia, echoes with tonalities of sadness and longing. English, by contrast, appears a language of will and abstraction. At the core of this memoir are inward debates between different mentalities shaped by language. The triumph is that Eva Hoffman is far from lost in translation. Her loss provokes a language of her own. She is unafraid of words like triangulate and bituminous, her wonderful vocabulary, stretching out to the shades of memory and understanding, is extended beyond the range of native speakers. Readers are drawn into her crossings, to the point of intimacy or friendship, which in Polish, we're told, carries the strongest connotations of attachment bordering on love. One way to be a South African is to feel my tie as an expatriate to my birthplace and I wanted to read a, a passage from the end of another memoir called Shared Lives. This is a memoir of women's friendship about three South African friends who were with me at school and who died young. In the last scene of the book I go to Paris to talk to another South African expatriate Winston Rosenberg from Freiburg, who was the husband of my Cape Town school friend, Romy Gewint, who had died suddenly when we were 36. As we crossed the Pont Saint-Louis, a street musician was playing the clarinet. 
a speaker filled in the orchestral parts of Mozart's clarinet concerto, blaring too loud, then too soft, and the player fiddled with it anxiously between the solos. It didn't matter. The vivacity of the scene more than compensated. The neoclassic grace of buildings, soliloquy, and a serene sky. Winston had said of Romy, Paris was her delight. Paris transformed her. There she found herself. As I met this Romy, who had been distant in her last years, I stood on the bridge, and the music swelled and carried her forward, buoyant in the mild sun. Her reckless past, the scream, the virginal frenzy, the broken wedding, contained by the graces of Paris. The speaker dimmed, swelled again, and suddenly, she came close, hiccuping with laughter, laughing wildly as she did at school, shaking back her red curls. It was for this that I came to Paris, without knowing it, not to speak to Winston, nor to visit her home or grave. But to meet her on this bridge, in the city of her dreams, to the beach she advanced, and beyond her, the round face of Lion's Head, the sun-stroked verges of the Good Hope grounds, and the waves as we bobbed to the shore in 1954, and rose at the little theatre in 1961, putting a gun to her chin in sport of my mad mother, and Ellie. Listening intently in 1966, as I raved in her car, I heard their voices, in the roll of the sea, in the wild southeaster, in the street cries of Cape Town, in the light and shadow of Lion's Head, in the rustle of the oak-lined avenue which we paced from school to town. I ranged with them over those remembered places. Have people apart from those faraway people ever existed for me? Voices rise, words come, from the country of the past. If I look back on my endings to lives, I can see another possibility: the afterlife. When I did a short life of Virginia Woolf for the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, the editor required a section on the afterlife of reputation and influence. At that time, I was completing Charlotte Bronte: A Passionate Life in 1994, and adding a chapter to follow her death. It was called Surviving, and this chapter relates what happened to the various players in Charlotte Bronte's story. In Vindication: A Life of Mary Wollstonecraft, published in 2005, an editor said to me, "Lives end in deathbeds." I rejected this, adding four more chapters. I went on defiantly. Mary Wollstonecraft's was an interrupted life. I should say that she died soon after childbirth, when she was 38, at the height of her powers. The eager vehemence of a voice breaking off. In mid-sentence, and the originality of unfinished books continued to shape lives bound up with her own. So I went on to follow four lives in the next generation. Two lives were those of her daughters Fanny Imlay and Mary Shelley, and two were the lives of followers Claire Clermont and Lady Margaret Mountcashel. I wrote. 
there's no end to the reverberations of far-reaching lives. Mary Wollstonecraft can't be dissociated from her daughters, her biological daughters, and those who come under her influence, her political descendants over subsequent centuries. The biography that came after Vindication was a fuller treatment of the afterlife of Emily Dickinson. It was called Lives Like Loaded Guns, based on her line, My life had stood a loaded gun. The story this time was of a poet not insulated, but in fact participating in a family feud, a feud, I may say, that goes on to the present day. There's a similar structure in Claire Harmon's Jane's Fame, also published in 2010. The book looks back to the actuality of Jane Austen's life and then follows the developing myths of the afterlife. Harmon relates how Jane Austen's family remodeled her as an inoffensive, quote, dabbler, then mounted her on a pedestal as, quote, divine Jane. Families are wary of genius. Austen's family doctored her history so as to present an image of a modest and retiring lady. The Harmon biography offers proofs to the contrary about a writer who mischievously boasted, I write only for fame. In this persuasive portrait, Jane Austen is a witty girl hungry for attention, a rejected novelist who perseveres to the point of bloody-mindedness, and later an assertive businesswoman who finds her civil publisher, John Murray, a rogue, of course. Jane Austen emerges here as a woman with life and spirit, a far cry from the image of impeccability her Victorian descendants wanted to foist upon the world. Given this flair of innovation by fellow life writers, Frances Wilson, Eva Hoffman, Janet Malcolm and others, I'd like to close by suggesting that instead of looking back to a supposed golden age of biography in the last century, we look forward to a time when life writing could be one of the arts, an art built on authenticity. Not for nothing are lives published with a massive end matter of documentation. I'd like to believe that despite the current popularity of fictional license, facts still matter and are, if we see into them, full of suggestion and story. Each of my subjects had something vital to teach about the genre of biography. Eliot taught me that each life has its distinctive form. Virginia Woolf taught me about the uses of memory. Charlotte Bronte alerted me to two crucial aspects, gender and the gaps in a life. Henry James beckons the biographer into the furthest reaches of consciousness. To develop the possibilities of life writing, to attempt to transform life writing as an art, has been my most private and ambitious motive. I do recognise that this is beyond me, a kind of mirage perhaps, but it's exciting to work on the frontiers of life writing. Most think of the golden age of biography as something that came to pass in the later 20th century, but I believe it is still to be. 
I want to get away from the illusion of definitive biography, which led to compendious and sometimes laborious tomes, and devise instead a form that can co-opt the intensity of poetry, the speed and excitement of drama, and the narrative anticipation of story. I'll end with Virginia Woolf's forward-looking realization that the art of biography is still in its infancy, or, more properly speaking, has yet to be born. The fun artist for the curator, <laughs> at last, Peter Dugase's uproariously funny comedy. I saw it all those years ago, and it was the funniest experience I'd ever had in the theatre. And now it's coming back as a musical. Oh yes, one drawback. Well, most of us in the dance. Oh, but will you understand it? Listen, you don't have to really speak a language properly to understand it, and there's nothing funnier than a joke in Afrikaans. Die von Artist for Kultur. Music composed by Godfrey Johnson, words by Peter Dirkace, produced by Peter Green, at the Theatre on the Bay from the 9th of December. Come on, book now. If